0: Hey, it's Sarah, and the Baseball Tonight podcast with Buster Olney is back Monday through Friday. Be sure to check out his episode with Dr. Anthony Fauci on the feasibility of having a full baseball season and what Fauci would tell players about being vaccinated. Buster also talks to World Series winning manager Dave Roberts and his counterpart in the other dugout, Rays manager Kevin Cash. It's the Baseball Tonight podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. A podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me.
1: My name is Damon Young, and my dilemma right now is that the food I eat doesn't agree with the things going on in my body. Which is a thing, I guess, that happens when you get into your 40s. I'm 42. Um, I'm 42. Yeah, I'm 42. Shit, 42. And yeah, I mean, I had to adjust my diet. I'm doing gluten-free shit. I'm doing vegan things, and its I- I'm not a fan.
0: Okay, this is the worst. And I'm actually convinced my body craves the things that it most rejects. Like, I love anything curry. Penang curry is my absolute favorite. But when I eat it, well... I think you guys know I don't need to get into detail. I think it's the combination of spicy plus coconut milk because I could do spicy otherwise. But I don't know what it is. But I love it too much to give it up entirely. So I just plan ahead when I'm going to have it. But I'm terrified of one day evolving into the kind of person that has to go no gluten or no sugar or no dairy or some massive kind of thing like that because that would make me very sad. And, and it feels like getting older. It's either you just say F it and you're constantly bloated or on the toilet or you have to start carefully curating the things that you put in your body and neither of those is fun. So I wish I had a solution for you, except I will say that a lot of the internet is trash. So actually take the time to single things out, remove them for a week or two and see if things get better. Don't let some bullshit website convince you that you're gluten intolerant or can't have dairy or whatever and remove all these delicious things from your diet for no good reason. Talk to an expert before you just wipe out a whole food group. Like, I'm not going to do that with curry. I refuse. I'm just going to let it slide. That's a terrible way of phrasing it. Anyway, good luck to you.
1: That's what she said.
0: Hey, everybody. I hope you're having a good week. I hope there's a little sun creeping into your world, both literally and figuratively. It's been warmer here after we had just weeks of straight snow and freezing temperatures. So even just getting outside and walking with my family in the woods for a little bit in 30 degrees felt downright, springtimey. Um, and the other thing about getting stuck in the house beyond just not having fresh air and being cold is that it becomes scary to leave the house. I saw this tweet the other day floating around that said, I've got to stop getting so comfortable looking so ugly every day. Um, so there's that, which is true. And I mean, you know, not having makeup and wearing raggedy clothes and must up hair. I mean, if I didn't have to do TV a couple of times a week, I might actually forget what looking good feels like. Uh, but beyond looking good, there's actually the idea of being appropriate in public, which I'm also struggling with. Like, I'll leave the house to walk just like three blocks to get coffee. And then halfway through, I'll wonder if I accidentally wore the sweatpants that I have with a tiny hole in the crotch and the thigh um, because I packed them next to a very sharp metal hair comb with a pick on the end. And they're still very comfortable. and basically knew i just shouldn't wear them out of the house because i shouldn't leave the house with a hole in the crotch or zit cream on my face uh anyway the point is the transition to real life is going to be really terrifying guys uh but the sun is helping me feel better now i just have to be more aware of um the holes and the zit creams and everything else when i go out in public
1: that's what she said
0: my guest this week is damon young he's editor-in-chief of the pop culture criticism website very smart brothers part of the root uh, he's also author of the book What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker and contributing opinion writer for the New York Times. Uh, good conversation, really interesting guy. We talk about growing up in Pittsburgh, playing college hoops, um, starting his own website, working freelance for a while, and the issues that um, make up the bulk of his book: uh, masculinity, blackness, anxiety. Um, so I hope you guys, I hope you guys enjoy it.
1: That's what she said.
0: So I have to say, I'm really excited that I asked you to be on this podcast because it made me be much more intentional about reading your work. And normally it's more that I come upon it in passing when it's a particular topic or it gets into my timeline. Um, not for not enjoying it in the past, but there's just so much content that, um, save for actually bookmarking Very Smart Brothers and trying to get into it every day. Um, it's more occasional. But because of this, I got a chance to go back and read a ton of stuff and read more about your book, which I'm now sad that I haven't yet read, um, but excited to get into. Um, and, and I wanna I wanna get into a whole bunch of stuff you've covered on the site and the book, but let's start way back at the beginning. Um, you grew up in Pittsburgh in a slightly less advantageous neighborhood until your family was able to move into a better one. Um, can you talk about sort of that transition for you?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, and I'm still in Pittsburgh. I'm still, you know, born and bred Pittsburgh is where I live right now. Um, and yeah, when, um, you know, I grew up in the hood, you know, um, you know, we didn't have a whole lot. And this was also... You know, I'm 42, so, you know, I'm coming of age in the the early and mid-90s. And Pittsburgh at that time uh, was, you know, at least in certain neighborhoods, there were a lot of gang activity. You know, Bloods, Crips, there was also a a Pittsburgh-specific gang called The Law, um, which was Lincoln Larmer Avenue in Wilkinsburg. Um, And so you had these three gangs, you know, fighting over turf in the city. And I was like, right, we lived in East Liberty, and I was kind of right in the middle of it. You know, there have been, I've seen drive-bys. <laughs> I mean, I've, we had our house shot into because mm-hmm. a Man. person, um there was like this warring group of drug dealers and one of them mistook our house for their arrival's house and shot into my parents' bedroom window and actually one of the bullets ricocheted and hit my mom. And it's, it's one of those situations where I, when I was living through that, existing through that, I didn't. I didn't feel fear. I didn't feel scared. I didn't feel any anxiety about that. I felt anxiety about other about other stuff and not about that. And it wasn't until, you know, I got a bit older and, you know, started to reflect on it. And particularly when I wrote about, you know, a lot of this stuff in my book, it was like, holy shit, that was <laughs> that was dangerous. I almost <laughs> almost died. Like I there was this one time in particular. I remember a group of us, we were playing tag football on the street, you know. And you know you play on the street, and then when a car comes, you move. You get on the sidewalk, and then car goes by. You play again. And middle of the summers, hot day, all these people outside. And there was one time when a car was there, beat their horn. We took a bit too long to get off the street to get out the way, and so he starts beeping real aggressively. And then that makes us like, you know, we're not, we're not, we're not moving. <laughs> uh, now we're like eleven, twelve years old. Now we're not moving. No. And so he gets out the car he gets out of the car with a shotgun. Oh man.
0: <laughs>
1: and starts chasing us. Right? And I, you know, we're running, we're dipping through alleys, we're, you know, doing whatever and I remember how much fun that felt to me. <laughs> then. Right. Like it was the funniest thing. I I I mean I'm laughing to the point where I could barely breathe while I'm running away and now <laughs> now I think about that it's it's terrifying yeah to to imagine that and so and so yeah I mean I, I grew up in that sort of, sort of circumstance um and my parents ended up moving to the suburbs when I was um i think 15 or 16 and I ended up finishing um high school out there at Pitt Hills high school um and basketball had always been like this threading thing throughout my Throughout my childhood and even my young adulthood, um, where I was always on the AU teams and traveling and even going out to the suburban school, I was able to do that because of basketball. Like, yeah. I shouldn't admit that. Well, I mean, it's been 25 years, so I, guess I, I can't admit <laughs> like, that. Like, by illegal basketball.
0: means? <laughs> like, um, were you uh so snuck into the school?
1: So it was funny because, all right, so we were living in East Liberty. But in ninth grade, I was at the suburban school and I was on the varsity basketball team. I wasn't getting any playing time, but I was on the team. And somebody's mom or dad told about me not living in this city. And so I ended up getting expelled from school. Hmm. And this happened in, I guess, in like February or March of that school year. So I had to finish the year at Peabody High School, which was a school that was like a block away from where I lived. And then I had to do my whole sophomore year at Peabody, and then my parents moved out to that suburb, and I yeah. finished school out at Penn Hills. So it was, it was. Was it hard it was going back and forth,
0: or was it clear I to mean, you?
1: Yeah, going back and forth, you know that 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 was difficult. You know, um, but it, it's one of those things with being a kid; like you just adjust, right? And you know, you're you're uh, you're just a lot more nimble, a lot more flexible. Um, when you're young, then, you know, then, then you get as, as, as you age. And so, and so the situations, you know, weren't, weren't ideal, weren't optimal, but I just felt like, okay, this is just what we got to do. And then when things change, then I'll change with them. And it didn't feel that crazy. Um, again, when I was, when I was 15 years old.
0: So you got a basketball scholarship and you go to Canisius College in Buffalo, New York, one of the Mm -hmm. few times you've lived outside of the Berg. Mm -hmm. Um, What did you want to study while you were there? And what was the experience (laughs) like there?
1: I mean, I wanted to study basketball Basketball, and girls. (laughs) That's that's, that's all I wanted to study, basketball (laughs) basketball and girls. Um, And and it's funny, like if you would ask me at that age what I wanted to do um, for a living, um, I wouldn't have told you I wanted to be the NBA because I I, reckon I was already conscientious enough at that point to realize that, you know what, that's the expectation. Like, if, you know, people, that's a stereotype. If you ask like a young black here from the hood what, what they want to be, they're going to say, oh, they want to be an NBA or I want to be a rapper or, or whatever. So if you would have asked me, I would have said, oh, I want to be a weatherman. And I was really into the weather. <laughs> at that point, I was really into meteorology, or I, I would have said I wanted to be—I don't know—was in the sports management. But the, but the, I feel at if if I were told the truth, then yeah, it would have been yeah, I want to be in the NBA, and then I get to college, and I play against some guys who are <laughs> actual professional basketball prospects. And you know I'm I'm like six one, six two on a good day. There are six one, six two guards everywhere. Yeah. And in order to stand out at this size, you have to be either a freak of nature or someone who dedicates every second of your life to playing basketball. And I was neither of those things. I, I still love to play, but it just it, it I just saw what it took to be that to be that good, and I was like I. That's just not me,
0: right? So, did you, you know. find? Did you start studying to be another man, <laughs> or did you find another route?
1: Well, that's when I—I I, I guess I really um, got into writing around that time. Now, this was—we you know, we're talking the late '90s and the zeitgeist driving theme, or the, the zeitgeist driving force at that time when I was in college was poetry, where you had, you know, so Love Jones was like the big movie. You had like deaf poetry jam on mm-hmm. on HBO, people like Saul Williams and Jessica Karen Moore, you know, were 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 household, were at least household-y names. I mean, you had groups like The Roots and other, you know, uh, popular rap, rap groups who would include spoken word poetry on their albums. So this was a thing. And so I kind of, I don't know, found myself in that world. And my entry into that world was me trying to impress a girl. And um, and since I'd never written any poems before, what I ended up doing, I went on the original hip-hop lyrics archive. Oh, boy. And I found some, what I assume were some really obscure rap lyrics, and I cut and paste them, and I sent them to her in an email, <laughs> and I titled it, From, from Me to You, as... as <laughs> Did you recognize just give myself. Plagiarism? Just give myself. Just give myself an alibi already. Yeah. And um, no, no, she wasn't a hip hop head, so she okay. just she liked it. She she thought it. She, I remember she said it was cute, which is not the anticipated it's response. It's a
0: start. It's better than the alternative. Um,
1: <laughs> and so from that point, you know, I, I kind of start with the plagiarism.
0: Right. It's all very <laughs> Russell Wilson describing Sierra on Instagram. Yeah, I
1: started. I don't know if you started, remember that
0: story, but it was. Well, like- what did you say? If you Googled something like beautiful woman, one of the first results was this extremely strange, I'll find it and I'll insert it here in the pod, but this extremely strange way of talking about a woman. And people were like, what a weird thing to say about his wife. And then people Googled beautiful woman and they're like, okay, that's, that checks out. He just, (laughs) yeah, he Googled it. Yeah, so he posted like a Women Crush Wednesday and wrote, I kissed her and she had honey sweet lips that were lilac soft with a loving and affectionate personality. And it was like, what? What is, what, what is this? And then uh, if you Google describing a beautiful woman, uh, he basically copy and pasted the first thing he saw.
1: Yeah, and I, um, I started writing my own, my own um, poems and then I started writing essays and ended up becoming the editor of the black newspaper there. And then um, there was a separate
0: black newspaper, or was it was it it was official for the school?
1: It was a separate. It was called the Nia News. It was a separate. It was part. It was from the black, the black action society. I forgot what we were called, but like the community of black students there at Keneshas, and there was we had our own newspaper, Um, and and so when I graduated from college, um, I had a cousin um, who unbeknownst to me at the time was already like a pretty well-known name and on with blogging and with um web design her name was a uh, sarah honey young and she suggested that she build a website for me as a place to archive my poetry right nice. and 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 she was like well you know while you have this site you could also do this thing called blogging and I was like, okay, all right, whatever. And so she built my blog and this was 2002. And that was, that was my first blog.
0: What was the name of that one?
1: Um, so it was hosted on her site, which was um, uh, the royal the royal youngs.com. Okay. So it was D at the royal youngs.com. Got
0: it. And what and kind of I stuff w- was on there?
1: It was just like my, my first job at a, college was teaching i would write about that i would write about dating you know i'd have these pop culture and political observations but it was it was it i treated it like a diary like yeah. like a like a lot like a, a, like a lot blog. of people yeah. who
0: started early in in mm-hmm. that thing i had a blog when i lived out in la right after college it was the same thing it was like randomly something comes up you want to write about and you throw it on there and it's just a disparate mess of whatever your th- thoughts were on yeah. whatever um <laughs> what were you teaching
1: I was teaching English. I was a sub at Wilkinsburg Junior Senior High School. And then I had my own classroom and I was an English I was an English teacher. I wasn't a very good teacher. This wasn't like Dangerous Minds where the, <laughs> the teacher comes and transforms the school. <laughs> right. This was right. This was um very um undangerous. <laughs> <So> undangerous <mind. laughs>
0: did you did you like it though and want to keep doing it? Was there a part of you that That's, said
1: I liked it, but I stopped doing it because I recognized that you know what this isn't being in the classroom every day just isn't a thing for me. Like education, I, I was into that. And my my next two jobs after that were still in education. But teaching, being in the classroom every day, that's just a skill set that I just did not possess.
0: So you ended up founding Very Smart Brothers in 2008. Yeah. Were you pretty consistently employed elsewhere for most of the time?
1: Well, so when we founded VSB and that's myself and uh, Panama Jackson. We I, we actually had a third partner Liz um Burr at the time she's no longer with us. Um, I need, to stop, saying, I need to stop saying I to stop saying she's no she, longer with us. because it sounds she, like she she is, moved on to other she, projects. No, she's just yeah. Doing other yeah, she, yeah, yeah, that works. <laughs> she's still alive. <laughs> <laughs> if you're listening to Liz, I'm sorry I didn't, didn't manage to kill you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but um but yeah, at the time I was working at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. I was running a college prep program out of their School of Business, and then in 2009, when the recession hit, the entire program shut down. Mm. And so I was at a you know had a bit of a dilemma, a bit of a crossroads where do I want to continue on in academia in some fashion? Do I want to maybe go to school get like a get like a PhD or something, or do I want to see if I could do the writing thing full time, which is you know. At that point, I had VSB, and we had a decent following. And so I was able to collect unemployment. Um, you know, one thing that definitely helped was living in Pittsburgh,
0: mm-hmm.
1: where, you know, Pittsburgh is one of the few major-ish cities where you can survive as a freelancer. Right. Um, because the cost of living here is low compared to, I guess, like a Philly or New York or D.C. or, or, or whatever, And so I used that time to to build a blog up and just try to get better at, at writing and, 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 you know, and, and just figuring out, okay, what type of blog, what type of writer do I want to be? And then, you know, by, I guess, 20, 2012, I was starting to get, you know, actual jobs from writing. And then it just kind of just snowballed from there. And eventually I got a gig at GQ and then um i got a book deal Harbor collins a two book deal and um and our blog got acquired by univision which at that time owned um gizmodo media group which was the old gawker media group with all the you know dead spin jezebel av club all autos all, um, all those sites and so we we became a part of that network
0: so before You got acquired and sort of that, I imagine, inserts a a fair amount of capital and also attention and and, uh, SEO uh, optimization and all the other stuff like that. But before that, so you were writing for places like Ebony and GQ. How did you get those freelance opportunities? Was it simply taking work from the blog and submitting it? Or were you you submitting on spec, like, here's a story I'd like to do for you? Or how did you get those uh, correspondences started?
1: People came to me that's great. Yeah. yeah. It, it, you know, I, now when I first started blogging, I reached out to people, I reached out to, I think like maybe Slate or Salon or some other, you know, digital publications about, about getting, about getting my work published there. And that never, none of that ever really came through. And so all the opportunities that I've had um, since, you know, since I've had these sort of opportunities have been people who have come to me. And, and it's funny, like I, there's a temptation to do like the Mike Jones thing, you know, back then you didn't want me. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> now I'm hot you're all on me right. thing with those sorts of publications who maybe weren't responding to my emails and, you know, didn't want me to publish stuff on their sites back then. But then I look back at my work.
0: Thank you. Back I was going to say the number of people that say that, and was, I want to be like, maybe we weren't ready yet. Yeah, right? Ready. Like, yeah. It I've wasn't, got this, it wasn't good. this girl that I'm mentoring and she's super talented, but she is so hard on herself and she's expecting herself to be doing the work that people who are twice her age are happy to be getting. And she's like, I think it's just stop. And I'm like, we got to work on this. we got to work on this belief that like they're missing out on how great you are no, when you're just, not you're just 24, <laughs> like learn some shit and live a little. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. So, I mean, even even thinking back to my college ball career, like it wasn't, you know, you could you could Google me. I did not have a great <laughs> college basketball career at all. When people ask me about that, usually I, I feel like people anticipate an answer like, oh, yeah, the coaches or, you know, right. the politics or whatever. It's like, nah, I just I got hurt a lot. I wasn't in shape <laughs> and did, I had a career that I deserved. one of the
0: things I find in sports is uh, if you were pretty good, you want to tell people. And if you were really good, you don't say anything. I was pretty good. So I like to tell people about it. So the people, Uh, because I figure like they're not going to assume that I was a division one athlete. Whereas my girlfriend who is One of my great friends from high school went to two Olympics in the pole vault and it will never come up unless I'm telling everybody, this is my friend, the Olympian, like she's such a badass and she's like, oh, whatever. And I'm like, yeah, you get really secure when you're great. And when you're just okay, you're like, I need everyone to know that I did this shit. <laughs> I need to put it out there.
1: Well, you notice I've, 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 I've named, I've dropped the basketball thing, a lot, yeah. even though I'm, yeah. I'm, I wasn't good in college, but <laughs> you still just, did it's, it. I'm still it's part of our identity.
0: It really is though. I will still crop yeah. you up today. That's right. Just That's because really...
1: I didn't, wasn't great in college doesn't mean that if we got on yeah. the court right now, yeah. I'm going to wire you up.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you want to grab a javelin right now, I will destroy any and everyone. ESPN plus Stephen A's world streams weekdays on ESPN plus bringing fans Stephen A Smith's entertaining perspective and deep expertise with signature guests. The best interviews from Stephen A's world are now available as a podcast every Wednesday. Listen, wherever you get your podcasts and watch Stephen A's world on ESPN plus. Okay. So you get acquired. That's huge. Um, Mm -hmm. And what were the either fears or excitements about that transition? Cause I know there are certain people when you go from independent to being a part of a conglomerate, you know, are there overseers or editors now that are going to regulate content or was it just excitement about an infusion of capital?
1: Yeah. The, I mean, it was 99% excitement because of money. Like that's, you know, no ifs, ands or buts about it. Like um, now we have had a relationship with the root before, you know where I knew we we the editor in chief Daniel Belton was a friend, and I knew the editors there. The publisher of the Root at the time was Donna Bird, and she she had flown me out to Miami to spend a day with her just to talk about like my plans and goals for the site. And this is probably like six months before the acquisition even happened. So you know I had a good relationship with them, and we've maintained I'd say ninety seven percent of our editorial autonomy um, with that with the move, and so. That wasn't a fear my, my, I was just so, you know, I guess happy with now one get the acquisition fee and we didn't come cheap. <laughs> and also yeah. now getting a salary for something that I've been, that we have been doing for free for, you know, I got, I guess at that time, eight, eight years, eight yeah. or nine years. So um, you weren't making
0: any money off the blog until no. the acquisition. So it was no. always a side project while you freelanced mm-hmm. elsewhere.
1: Yeah. Wow. And, And there were, you know, there were opportunities to make money off of the blog. I mean, we could have had ads, we could have done sponsored posts and all that things. But we, you know, we actually let a lot of money kind of go because we weren't business minded people. You know, we were just more about okay, we would just want to build this blog. Which is why it's nice to be
0: acquired because someone else handles the shit that you don't care about. (laughs) And,
1: And that's the thing that you know, there there was some some criticism when that happened. And particularly, you know, and this thing happens, you know, sometimes uh, in a black community where because now I'm no longer, now the blog is no longer black owned. Right. And this, this wasn't a, this didn't happen a lot, but there were some people who were like, yeah, they're selling out. Right. That are, you know, there There's an expectation or, or, of
0: martyrdom for creativity that's not necessary. You don't yeah. have to be a starving ar- artist to be a valid artist, but a lot of people associate the two.
1: Yeah, and and we in and, and and the thing is, as as you said, I mean, we all the stuff about ads and and, and marketing and all. I don't know that shit, and I have no interest right. in doing that. If you want to run a business, that's great. But if you want to run a business, you have to know all the things that go involved with running a business. And I'm I'm more interested in just creating, yeah, and absolutely. and allowing someone else to think about all the other financial business, whatever stuff I just want to be able to work and write and, 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 and think.
0: Well, let's get into some of the writing and, and the thinking. And I'm going to start with, uh, actually the thing that I, I first, I, I might have read the blog before, but this is when I first remember sort of connecting with it because I shared it and bookmarked it and I kept bringing it up. Um, I had been speaking about LeVar Ball and how he was trash a lot. And I'm, tried to articulate the idea that I thought it was insulting to black fathers to hold him up as an example of greatness in fathering because of the success of his children, while he was also modeling terrible misogyny and Mm -hmm. sort of a Trumpian way of speaking where nothing mattered and the accuracy was unimportant. Um, His misogyny in terms of uh, officials and uh, Kristen Leahy and then his wife in some of the interviews was Mm -hmm. really upsetting. But it felt difficult sometimes coming from me, a white woman to try to speak on that issue. And so whenever there was pushback, I would say here, this guy said it really well, (laughs) and and he's a black guy. And like, maybe that makes you understand better what I'm trying to say that it's not an attack at all. In fact, it's a simple, um, what you wrote, which is defending and excusing problematic black men ain't love. It's low expectations. Excusing his shit and defending him as some rare and precious jewel of black manhood and black fatherhood implicitly agrees with the worst stereotypes about black men and black fathers that were so rare that LeVar Ball has to be handled like the hope diamond. Ultimately, this defense is what happens when you've allowed what the world expects of black men to exist as your standard. You start believing the hype, insisting that a black man doing a thing is so isolated and rarefied that it's worth excusing all the terrible just to preserve the talent. And while this train of thought might possess the veneer of pro-blackness, it's actually pervasively anti-black as the coddling suggests that these men aren't able to be better people, like it's impossible for us to be talented and not terrible. So much smarter than what I said, but it's exactly what I was trying to say.
1: (laughs) You know what? It is funny. Like I've I've I probably have about two or three thousand bylines. (laughs) And and when you're reading that, all of that felt new. Oh wow. Like I forgot it. it. Wow, I sound smart. I I guess I did write that. (laughs) I guess I did say that. Oh. Oh good for me. But yeah. And- it was
0: interesting on your site. It seemed like you took a journey with him because the earlier stories were I'm not sure how to feel about him. This reminds me. I mean, my dad some ways. And then it was like you're liking a shitty person. And then it was like he's like you you really evolved with so many other people. Oh.
1: Well, and because I'm still my thoughts about Lavar Ball are still, I mean, and I think I wrote that piece maybe 3 years ago and my thoughts are still Right, 2017. E- yeah, my thoughts are still evolving. And and you know, I and I do think that there there's a nuance there with the critique, right? Because I, I I do think that some of the critique that he received, some of the mainstream critique that he received was racist. Yep. Um, you know, I, I stopped saying race-based or racially colored or whatever, just to say racist, um, where because he's this big and loud black man. And, you know, he says his son is going to be this or are going to do this or be this way. And there's this automatic pushback and this automatic, you know, I guess, compulsion to, to, to prove him wrong. Where you could end up not just rooting against him, but rooting against his sons because you don't like the presentation of the father. So so that part is definitely real and definitely true. But but again, you know, LeVar Ball reminds me of the AAU dads that I would hate. You would hate being teammates with their sons. You would hate it when they came to games and they're trying to coach the coaches. They're, you know, they're pulling their son off of this team and putting them on that team. And you, you just, you see that. And, you know, I'm reminded of that sort of bullying when I see him, you know, and so I also think it's
0: reductive to talk about fatherhood is merely whether you can usher someone into success at a skill if you aren't also teaching them how to treat women, how to treat other people, how Mm -hmm. to lose gracefully, how to get given an ejection and actually leave instead of costing your team a forfeit because you refused. Like all of those things are part of becoming a human being, not just Mm -hmm. being an NBA star, which all props to him. It's incredible to have two lottery picks for sons. But what else are you teaching them and what else are you modeling, you know?
1: You know, and I, I, I'll give him, I will say this for LeVar Ball is that, you know, now he had the the middle son who got into the, you know, the, the shoplifting thing right. or whatever, but his two sons, you know, seem to be very upstanding model, not just citizens, not just great NBA players, yeah. good NBA players, but also like decent guys, right. you know, guys who, you know, teammates want to be around, guys who you know, I guess won't quote unquote embarrass the franchise or whatever. Right. And so I, you have to give him that credit for that. And and also it, it's funny, like these are two of the most unconventional players that have entered the league in like the last decade from their shooting form to the way they handled the ball to just just even like their movements, like the certain angels that they take in a certain, you know, whatever. And I don't know how much their dad has, contributed to that. Um, but again, if they're both entering the league and they're both as orthodox, but one is a bit more effective than the other, the younger one, I think it's a prodigy. Right. Um, he, I, you do have to give him some credit for that. But for sure. But again, but again, I think that he is also a bully.
0: Yeah. And your, your, your commentary was valid too, that there's a tendency then to compare him only to other prominent black fathers in sports mm-hmm. when there are endless examples of this in white families as well. We'll get right back to the interview, but first, what is your favorite word?
1: Um, <laughs> I don't think that I can say my favorite word on this podcast. Give it a shot. Let's no, find no, out. No, 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 I, It's it's the N word. It's just it's the English language's like best Swiss Army knife. Like there's so <laughs> many different ways to congregate it. Also, I like the fact that I can say it, and you know, white people can't. I, I, I'm like the kid at the playground. You know, I can. You can't play with my toy. And I'm just saying that you can't because that's it. It's my toy.
0: Well, I think he summed that up well. Very versatile word when used wisely and by the correct people, which is why I will leave it to him to use. And even the etymology and in etymology circles, there's debates as to when it evolved from simply being sort of interchangeable with black or Negro to becoming a slur that has the power and contempt that it does now. So I'm going to leave it to scholars to discuss the etymology and the ways it's been sort of "quote unquote" reclaimed by the Black community as well.
1: You're going to learn today.
0: While we're on the topic of reclaimed words, my favorite one is the word of the week, "bitch." In Old English, it literally was for female dog, but then it evolved in the 1400s to a term of contempt for women, um, and then in the 1930s it, it turned into a verb to to bitch or complain. And personally. I use it both critically and in praise. I will call someone a bitch for being an asshole, but I will also call women badass bitches. In fact, I do it a lot. So reclaiming the word from the people who use it solely to denigrate women is good to me. I know some people who aren't into it ever being used, but for me, I use it to give women power and I love calling people badass bitches, not just because of the, you know, sort of alliterative qualities, but because there's a strength and power to the word that's much stronger than badass lady. Um, So in a sentence, like Tina and Amy said on Saturday Night Live's weekend update, bitches get stuff done. Now let's get back to the interview. Another story that you wrote that really stood out and that you've talked about a lot, but I'd love to touch on here quickly, is uh, in 2017, again, straight black men are the white people of black people. I won't read a whole thing, although there's a ton of it that I would love to because it's really thoughtful. Um, But you start out by talking about how it might be counterintuitive because straight black men are at the bottom or near the bottom for every relevant metric for quality of life. Um, But there is a privilege there. And your relationship to black women is not unlike whiteness's relationship to us as in black people. Uh, Here's what you wrote. Um, we're the ones for whom the first black president created an entire initiative to assist and uplift. We're the ones whose beatings and deaths at the hands of police galvanized the community in a way that the beatings and sexual assaults and deaths that those same police inflict upon black women do not. We're the ones whose mistreatment inspired a boycott of the NFL, despite the NFL's long history of mishandling and outright ignoring far worse crimes against black women. We're the ones who get the biggest seat at the table and the biggest piece of chicken at the table, despite making the smallest contribution to the meal. And nowhere is this more evident than when considering the collective danger we pose to black women and our collective lack of willingness to accept and make amends for that truth. And you talk a lot about wanting black people, wanting white people to understand that, that the realities of two worlds are different. And that even when racism isn't blatant or doesn't even maybe appear to exist at all, you should be given the benefit of the doubt because black people have trained themselves to sense it and to be able to recognize because your safety depends on it. And then when women, Black women particularly, say that Black men or men in general pose the same existential and literal danger that whiteness does, when they are asked for the benefit of the doubt about street harassment or sexual assault or other forms of harassment, um, people often reject that. And uh, Black women have to plead to say, All of these things that we also have to be hyper aware of in order to protect ourselves are important too. Um, I can only imagine the backlash you get for this, but this sits at such a wheelhouse for what I wish we could have more honest conversations about, which is marginalized or disenfranchised groups understanding each other's plight and then using that connection to push back on um, basically white cisgender men's dominance of everything. And instead we battle within each other in addition to fighting this white patriarchy. And we don't get anywhere because we don't have enough power in our own pockets. And I wonder the kind of responses you got from that story.
1: It's, it's funny. So that, that piece, you know, it's, I guess it's almost four years old now. And I, (laughs) people ask me about it a lot, you know, when I come on, when I do podcasts or even people tweet it at me and, you know, and I understand why, because the title is very, very provocative. Um, you know, it a uh, cast judgment in a way that, you know, I guess was somewhat unpopular, although you know I will say, and I think I may have even said this in the piece, is that what I said was not new. Um, there were you know, black feminist scholars and 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 black feminists today who have said similar things. Um, you know, repeatedly who have done an entire work, you know, based off of that. So I didn't invent a will right with that. But the, the response was mostly positive, actually. It's just that the people who were upset about it were very loud. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and the thing that I guess, the thing that I guess bothered me about some of that response, well, a couple of things. One is It's an analogy. And, you know, there are people, you know, who respond like, well, so you're saying that black men are are like white or white men, black men are like Hitler. Like, no, (laughs) what, what I'm saying, okay, if I were to say that you are the Michael Jordan of baking, that does not mean that when you are baking cakes and cookies that you're like slam dunking and you're sticking your tongue out and you're wearing Jordan threes each time you do it. No, it just means that you're really good at baking. It means you're the best, the second best baker ever. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, we're not
0: going to get into that. We don't have time for that.
1: So I'm just going to okay. put a pin in that and tell you that you're wrong, and then we're going to move on and continue your analogy. <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> I mean, listen, I know why arguably, you went for Jordan. Arguably I the mean, best baker ever. Okay, arguably the guy that came into your head when you had to think of an analogy for the best, and I understand why. But, Carry um, on.
1: But, yeah, so – so yeah, so th- that's that's the analogy, it, and also you know, too, you know, it was just trying to just listening and reading, you know, black women, you know, articulating, you know, certain fears and and certain anxieties and and and, and neuroses, you know, about about violence, about sexual assault, about you know all, all these things that that have a disproportionate effect on 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 women and. Seeing that our responses very often would be dismissal right. or, or would be, well, you know, I'll believe you if you could cite some statistics or it's it's all the rest of them, but it's not me. Right. And, it's, and it's like that's, that's the exact same thing that white people who claim not to be racist say. It's like, oh, well, racism. Yeah, I'll admit racism exists, but, you know, if you could show is me Is there a video? Stats, right. Is there a video? Is there some evidence? Yeah. Or how do you know, how so do you know if this happened because you're Black? How do you know this didn't just happen? Mm-hmm. And the, the language is the same. The, the rhythms of the language are the same. Um, and that piece was just trying to, I guess, articulate that point, right. you know. And, you know, as with a lot of the things that I've written, you know, there are things that I said in that piece that I might change if I wrote it again today. Um, I mean, there's shit that I wrote last week that I would read and like, "Ah, I want to change that sentence or I want to take this paragraph out or include this paragraph. So
0: That's part of writing, and that's part part of especially cultural criticism. That's uh, reacting in the moment to something in the moment, but it's certainly also part of the process of evolving and learning, which is so key to what we all do. That it can be frustrating to have something brought up from a long time ago and then just say, "Yeah, I figured it out since then," Um, you know. But but it's useful to to go back and look. I just think it's such an interesting conversation to have. You you wrote a book in twenty nineteen like I said, I haven't read it yet. Now I really want to because I found the analysis of it and the conversations around it. (laughs) I'm so sorry. Like, I wish I could send you a photo of the books on my nightside table that I have said, I intend to read this one next. And then I'm like, "Um, but uh, you... You write about um, masculinity, economic insecurity, um, race and and division in Pittsburgh. One of the things that I found interesting was um, something you write about in the book, but also on the blog about the segregation in Pittsburgh. We don't have the luxury of easing into blackness, of finding quick comfort, of lazing into immediately friendly spaces. If you want to be black in Pittsburgh, you need to be motherfucking intentional about it. You need to research, you need to procure, you need to excavate, you need to Google and I don't know if you spent much time in Chicago, but it's potentially the most segregated major city in in the United States. And that feels like it must be so true. I, I would have to ask people of color what they think about that statement. But it certainly feels like in Chicago, if you want to interact with people um, that are not predominantly white, it's the same intentionality. You have to go to those spaces and neighborhoods. You have to go to those places um, because Chicago is frankly terribly segregated to the point of um, not a lot of that crossover in between. And when you go to places like, for instance, I went to a wedding in Atlanta a couple years ago, and it was amazing and incredible and wonderful to me how diverse all the spaces that I went felt. Um, And I wonder if you feel like Pittsburgh is getting more like that or less. Like, is there any... Is there any proof that it's getting more segregated or does it feel like that divide's growing?
1: Well, Pittsburgh, um, it's not so much that it's segregated. And I and I know that segregation um aspect, it's um it's it's Pittsburgh isn't singular in that there are many other major cities that also, you know, follow those same sort of tracks and and there's an intentionality behind the segregation too, particularly in, you know, Chicago, Philadelphia. I mean, you just continue to name the cities. Um, Pittsburgh, what makes Pittsburgh unique, it's also extremely white. Um, and I, I don't have the numbers for Chicago off the top of my head, but I would assume that the city itself is probably about 30%, maybe 40% black. And then you have a Latino population, and then you you have all these other you know um, ethnic groups or ethnicities that are, that are in the mix, whereas Pittsburgh... Um, the Pittsburgh metropolitan area is the whitest major metropolitan area in the country. Hmm. And that, that, that includes places like Salt Lake city and wow. Sacramento I mean, places that you would think that you would assume are wider than Pittsburgh. And so not only is it segregated, but it's also extremely like atmospherically white in the city. And so in order to find space, in order to, you know, fine community, you do, there has to be like an intentionality with it that 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 is unique to Pittsburgh in terms of other like major-ish cities. Yeah. Um, and I don't think it's getting better. I mean, I, I think that more people are recognizing and, and, and acknowledging Pittsburgh for what it is. I mean, there was a study that came out in 2019 um, that actually proved that Pittsburgh... Is actually the worst city in the country for Black women. Well, if you look at like health and and and, and, and economic and, um, opportunity, and yeah. economic, like all, all across the board, hmm. you know infant mortality, poverty, like all, whatever metric you could possibly look at, Pittsburgh is the worst. When you when you just combine them all and look at the totality of it, but Pittsburgh also rarely finds itself on lists of like the most livable city. And it feels like every three or four years there's a new like national profile about how Pittsburgh is like the new Brooklyn or the next Austin or the next Seattle or, or whatever, the, yeah. f- the next Mars. And <laughs> and so how does a city be the most livable on one end, but also the least livable right. for 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 black people, particularly for black women and girls. And you You can't help but think that there's an intentionality behind that. I keep coming back to that word intentional intentional intentionality, because I, I think that you know when we think about race and we think about bias and we think about racism in this country, there tends to be this thought, this idea that things happen by accident, that people just make decisions and the decisions just happen to have these certain results over and over and over again. But the reality is that there's there is thought behind it. There, there not there might not be thought in like the everyday actions and in everyday. You know, I'm going to wake up this morning and be racist. No, but it's it's a it's a continuation. It's a systemic. You know, it's a systemic problem that stretches back for for centuries. Right. And what we see today and how we live today is the result of decisions made two hundred years ago, one hundred fifty years ago, one hundred years ago, fifty years ago.
0: And things that we you know. perpetuate because we don't ask about their intentionality. We presume their ambivalence and then just keep continuing them failing to recognize that they actually oftentimes originated from a very intentional effort mm-hmm. to, to ground and restrict um, Black people. One of the things you talk a lot about in your book is, is masculinity and, and your Blackness. And it feels like in both of those, what's so fascinating to me is so much of the, of the way society tells boys and men and then also Black people what not to be, but then also the limitations on what you can be. We spend a lot of time now telling young girls you can be anything you want because actual restrictions on women and girls are very identifiable. But then in the abstract, we really limit boys and men to have certain feelings, certain ways of expressing themselves certain ways of being that we will say people will find attractive or want to interact with. Can you sort of speak to that? Because I think one of the things we've started to uncover and need to spend more time on is the damage that we do to boys and men with those limitations and how that results in some of the either violence or um, acting out that that we would like to stop if we could understand the root of it.
1: Yeah. I mean, there are these these socialized ideals of of manhood and you know, of optimal and ideal manhood that, you know, and, and, and we're all susceptible to that messaging because it, it's everywhere around us. And so very often you have young, young men and boys who are and in this, I'm talking about black men and boys, but this is, this is, this transcends race. So I'm talking about right here, but it just happens to, I, I guess, probably maybe affect us the, you know, in the most exaggerated um, fashion, but, you know, so you have these socialized ideals and you have young men and boys trying to reach them and realize, like, you know what, I, I can't do that. And so how do I close the gap between who I actually am and this this ideal? Um, and sometimes you 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 close that gap with lies. You close that gap with a facade. You close that gap with an empathy void. You know, where you become so caught up and trying to, you know, portray a certain image that you don't just allow yourself to be and allow yourself to feel and allow yourself to just exist in the world and exist and be present and and have empathy and have grace and have all these things. And and also not just those things, but have anxiety, have, have doubt, have fear, express these things out loud you know, don't keep them like pressure compact inside of you. And that's the sort of shit that, you know, if you look at, you know, if you, if you look at certain health outcomes and life expectancy and you see that men die early, (laughs) earlier rates and that black men, particularly men of color die even earlier, that definitely, you know, plays a part in it where, you know, all, all this stuff that's just, just kept inside instead of, allowing, you know, in, in, instead of existing in a, in a world that kind of allows for more of a freedom. Yeah. Um, and, and again, that, that plus all of the other external shit that's happening that, you know, it, 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 it's a killer.
0: Well, if you combine sort of the feeling of, I can't be a threatening black man in the world because that will affect my fear. But also the messaging of what I need to present in order to be attractive to women, in order to be tough, in order to be, you know, have high status is sort of the opposite of that. How do I marry these two things in the same way that we do with with masculinity? Um, There was a great uh, undefeated profile of your book. And I love this line. Young offers, among other things, an accounting of the way he has bumbled through life, narrowly avoiding death by embarrassment. (laughs) No matter where he went, Young insisted on overthinking everything and generally being as awkward as possible. His book tells us how he got through it, got married, and started accepting the things that once made him insecure about himself. Um, I love that. And I also love how you compared the anxiety that we use for white people, of this stereotypical sort of white Glasses, Woody Allen type doesn't feel like something we ever apply to Black people because we don't presume that they have maybe the time or the money or the security to be anxious instead of outright mm-hmm. fearful. So, do you feel like in the book you properly express to people that you can be just as anxious and weird as like um white bespectacled, uh, maybe Jewish man <laughs> as anyone else?
1: <laughs> yeah, like so. The book, you know, for people who haven't read the book, you know, it's it's actually a We're
0: all book. very sorry.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's mostly. It's mostly a humor now, I touch on these these very heavy themes of of, of gender and class and, and economic vulnerability and, and even you know a chapter on rape culture and and all these, you know, and my my mom's death. Um, you know, and all these very, very heavy and serious themes, but the book, I mean, the way I tell stories, the way I write, you know, it's 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 mostly a humor book. And I'm actually writing another book right now, which is more of a very specific humor anthology. And in the introduction to the anthology, um, I talk about how, yeah, I mean, if anyone is going to be neurotic, if anyone is going to possess anxiety, of course, it's going to be some some black kid from the hood. Who, who has to be cognizant of okay am I am i wearing the the right clothes is this is, is this the right color in this neighborhood am I am i in the, am I in the right neighborhood am i am i using the right slang and, and having to process all of that all of the time and yeah that that will definitely induce you know uh, a, a neuroses and that sort of neurosis is associated with you know well I guess upper middle class, white people, you know, you think Woody Allen, you think like Larry David, you think mm-hmm. um, you know, think Seinfeld, you think um, you know, and you, know, you think of a very particular type and and not just whiteness, but a even male type.
0: And male. Yeah. Right? And, you just came yeah, um, I mean, male. women, it's, it's very, like hysteria it's yeah. or d- mm-hmm. dramatics versus yeah, it's the word yeah, to but they matter. Yeah.
1: White male niche, um appetite to, yeah. you know, and 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 again, I you know I'm a fan of appetite I'm a huge fan of Larry David. I watch Seinfeld, um, also, in, in Curb. And I lo- I love your humor, but it is it, it, it is telling that they are the ones who are considered to have the the neuroses. And and the thing is too, neur- neuroses is associated with intelligence. Mm-hmm. So if you're you could only be neurotic if you're smart enough to to I guess have these ambivalent feelings about your surroundings and about manners and about mannerisms. Right. But, you know, as I argue in 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 my book and in this next book, it's like, yeah, I mean, yeah, they have that shit, but we have it too. In fact, we probably have it even, even more intense Mm -hmm. because this is, this isn't just, you know, about manners. Sometimes it's about life and death.
0: Well, it, and, it takes and, the edge that, off it to call it anxiety because yeah. then it then it not only um, allows for it, it gives it a touch of almost like humor and relatability, but it also then removes the concept of complaining from mm-hmm. it. We allow people with anxiety to have problems with everything and anyone around them and shrug them off. What we do for black people or women with problems is to accuse them of always complaining or mm-hmm. playing the race card or acting like they don't have... The, you know, equal yeah. o- equal opportunity, and then we paint it in a totally different light. So then, it's no longer anxiety. It's something that can be sort of demonized.
1: Yeah, I'm thinking like specifically about this time. Um, I was like maybe 15. Um, I was hanging out in East Liberty neighborhood in Pittsburgh. I was wearing a red sweatshirt. Okay, hanging out with a couple of my boys in front of um, this community center, and then I see a couple guys like probably about 200 feet away across the street, whatever. And one of them, like, looks at me and is staring at me. Now, he's 200 feet away, so I can't tell if he's just looking in my direction or if he's actually staring at me. So I'm, we're just hanging there talking. And then he starts walking towards me and starts getting closer and closer. And now as he gets closer, I could very obviously see that, oh, this is a guy from, from the law gang. He's wearing all black. And he probably thinks I'm a blood because I'm wearing this bright-ass red sweatshirt. So as he so as he gets closer, I'm thinking to myself, okay, am I? Should I pick up a rock? <laughs> am I going to have to fight this dude? Should I run? Because <laughs> there was like three of them. It's like, okay, so what what am I going to do? Do I want to look like a punk and run away? And so eventually, I was like, you know, I'm just I'm I'm just here. Whatever happens, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And as he gets closer, I see it's actually someone I know from my old neighborhood. His name was Aaron. His name was Aaron Ray. And he comes up to me and he's like, yo, D, man, yo, I thought you was one of the bloods, man. You you lucky you, you, man, because if you weren't you, you know, who knows what would have happened. And now my pants, my my face was drenched. Yeah. I probably needed to change, you know, my underwear at that point. And I'm thinking about that situation in terms of how funny it is (laughs) in hindsight because that was a I mean I could see that being you know a part of a part of a memoir or part of a part of a part of a show. Just that sort of experience and also the conversations happening Mm -hmm. in the in the kids' head while this is happening. Right. But again, I, I I I don't think that those sort of situations which are which can induce like a deep um neuroses are thought of that way. They're thought of, oh, this is like so dramatic and yeah. and 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 so like awful. And and they are awful and terrible, but they also can be like I, I, I guess content Right. <laughs> mind content. mind for their humor, mind like for, for all mind, of our dramas. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um we're running out of time. So I just wanted to to wrap up. I, I'm sure you have to go, so my apologies for keeping you, but um quickly I wanted to ask like you know, you're writing this second book now, post George Floyd, and what some people would argue was a meaningful reckoning in this country and a reevaluating of where we stand, and others would argue was a blip that will soon be forgotten or maybe already has by so many that um, have the ability to actually create change. What did that feel like to you, and does the now time feel different than before then?
1: I mean, it felt surreal. Um, just seeing like all these corporations and companies and professional sports leagues coming out with, you know, these statements about Black Lives and Black Lives Matter and um, we're anti-racist and, you know, it's like, thank you, Frost and Mini Wheats, <laughs> for your commitment to <laughs> Black Lives Matter. I, I was, I was counting, I was counting on thank you. Thank you, Aunt Jemima. Thank you you. were the
0: last straw and now thank we are you. good.
1: We I, pre- I appreciate you. Thank you. And so, so there was definitely that, um, that, that just, that just, just like, is this really happening? And once I got past the, is this really happening? It's like, okay, let's see. Let's see how long, let's see how long this lasts. Let's see how long it, it takes.
0: So a quick aside, I think part of the reason that I'm asking Damon about this is because I just hopped on a podcast where one of the hosts was Hugh Jackson, the former Browns coach and NFL coach. And we got into sort of a heated back and forth about whether anything meaningful had come from George Floyd summer. The fact that we were all so limited by the fact that we couldn't leave our homes or many people weren't working and there weren't distractions from sports or music or entertainment and had to really sit with ourselves. And he was of the impression that nothing had changed and nothing had gotten better. And I was of the opinion that tends to be my way which is much more optimistic that we at least started from a different conversational point during that than we had in previous iterations of the same conversation it felt like we were starting from step 1 every other time this happened over the last say decade and this time we skipped the first couple steps of is this really a thing is police brutality even something that exists how do we talk about uh white supremacy and 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 its its role in our country's history and and present and it felt like we at least had a base level acknowledgement of so many more things and then were able to take steps forward because of that. Um, There were a significant number of white people who had retained information from the last time they were asked to step outside their own lives and consider the lived experiences of black people. And they took that information and were able to move forward with it. And I hope I'm not being overly optimistic, but I fear I might be in the same way that if you ask women if issues of Me Too and sexual assault and harassment have evolved. I want to say yes. And I do think there's a much more open conversation about it than before Me Too. But I don't think that that's actually reduced the amount of it that's going on. I think it merely potentially offers up safer ways for women to report it. Um, And yet I say that while living in a society that still seems to punish women for coming forward while protecting and, and saving men. Um, So I try to put myself in that. And I think a lot of conversations with Damon today and that I've been having, I don't want to presume myself to understand the position of people of color, but I also do want to use the empathetic skill of understanding what it is to be a woman in society and apply it to the issues that other marginalized groups uh, face. And I think if we all did that, we would at least probably be more accepting and understanding of the ways that people try to tell us about whatever it is restricted experiences and opportunities, a lack of respect, actual safety hazards um, that they face. And so if we all started from those places, even if we get it wrong occasionally, and even if I'm wrong in in believing that progress has been made, at least there's an effort um, to talk about it. And I think we all should be doing that.
1: I mean, do you think that America is in a better place politically <laughs> right now than it was <laughs> anytime the last four ago, years
0: yes um you know, because of meaningful changes you know i
1: mean i think that you know biden winning was you know what I'm, I'm not going to deny that that was much better than trump winning again but you know we have 70 million people who voted for despite all the shit that trump did in the last four years you still decided you know what this is still my guy yeah and then a large percentage of those 70 million who are willing to go down with his ship, who who believe his lies. And so, yes, I mean, things might Biden's win, you know, I, I think is is better, obviously, than Trump winning again. But when you just look around and you see just the just the just how far people are willing to go to def- and this is you know to be frank this is them defending whiteness this is them you know feeling like their whiteness is being threatened this is them feeling like their whiteness is um is endangered and this is what this is what is happening right now you know where they're they're defending like this this you know white male patriarchy and Trump is the figure the the prominent figure of it and they feel like you know what if we are able to protect him if we are able to save him that will be able to save whiteness as if whiteness is under any sort, is is that under any sort all? of threat. Right. Is that risk at all?
0: My only thought is that I hope that the importance of the black vote and black organizers, both for the presidency and for flipping the Senate, is something that will cause um, there to be more pressure on the people who have now assume those positions to actually act in the interest of those people instead of ignoring it. Now, that's based on uh, zero history that would support that yes, fact. Uh, but again... Uh, Hope is a good word. Hope Uh, is necessary uh, at this point. But no, it is interesting who you talk to, whether they think that there was any significant and meaningful difference post-George Floyd or before. Um, And I think a lot of that is whether you naturally lean towards cynicism or optimism. Um, And of course, I do think it actually very much has to do with your color, right? A lot of people of color are like, cool, catch me in a couple of years and let's see if anything actually important has taken place or if it's just a bunch of endless meaningless, empty statements. Um, and, and I think white people are like, well, oh, but this time I read a book. <laughs> and so now it feels different. You know,
1: I mean, if you just look at America as like a continuum, you know, from, you know, I guess 1619 till till today last, the, the you know, the 400 years, whatever. I mean, the yeah. one can the consistent thread throughout American history has been violence um, against against black people. Mm-hmm. You know, we've had we've had, you know, places where it's gotten less violent, Um, but that's been a consistent part of our history throughout the entire time that we've been here. Right. So.
0: I always try to find optimism and then I'm reminded (laughs) that we've had hundreds of years to work on this and we keep taking steps back. And having to make that initial step forward again every time we t- every time we step back, which is difficult to digest. Um, we could keep talking, but we're out of time, and we'll have to have you back after the next book. And by then, I will, of course, have read both of them, and I will be <laughs> a top game. I have uh,
1: Stacks of books <laughs> sitting next to me right? Yeah, now. That, it's, that endless. Never, it's endless. It's endless. Books. I'm supposed to blurb.
0: Oh, yeah. So I that, feel, the other I thing feel, is they get yeah. asked to do those and then they take precedence mm-hmm. over the ones sitting on my on my table. Um, before you go, though, you do have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects.
1: I didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition.
0: It's the Spanish Inquisition. Number one, your current career is canceled. You can no longer be a writer or a cultural critic or a podcaster or anything else. What job do you do instead?
1: I would probably be a farmer um, just because I really like food. Okay. And I want to be next to the food.
0: <laughs> uh, number two, what's the most scared you've ever been?
1: <sighs> um, Probably six years old um, with my cousins. um, We were watching Friday the 13th. I'd never seen it before. And the scene where Jason jumps out the lake, you know, and, and, it's the girl she's in the cab she's in the canoe like that is i still can't i still cannot watch <laughs> like
0: that thing. uh number three you could be best in the world at anything for one day what is it
1: anything for one day um i don't know um if if it's just a one-day talent then predicting Financial markets. There I would you just go. invest a whole bunch of money in a whole <laughs> bunch of different places for one day, and, very smart, and boom!
0: Very smart. Uh, number four. What current celebrity of TV, music, politics uh, would you most like to be your best friend?
1: Best friend. Um, I, I, I'm gonna go with Kyrie. So I, I think it would just be a lot.
0: Really? Of fun.
1: All, yeah, think, all the I think human be beings. A lot of fun. Yeah. Oh my god! <laughs> wow. That's, that's, your best friend. Yeah. You know I mean, how many have,
0: thousands of potentially millions of people before I would get to I, world look, B I have, flat?
1: I don't have you know, I don't have any like any room right now on my friend card. I have I have a lot of friends. Oh, okay. And so I figure if I'm gonna get like get a someone new that brings friend, in some new It has to be someone that, that brings in something. Yeah. New. Yeah. He
0: would challenge you on a regular basis and make mm-hmm. you think, that's for sure. Yeah. Number five, what's your biggest, most meaningless pet peeve?
1: Biggest, most meaningless pet peeve: um, typos and tweets. I guess I, I hate I hate seeing that. But and that's probably why I don't tweet. Like I'm not <laughs> I am not like a person who's really on Twitter that much. When I Smart tweet, it's the it's to share things that I've written. But I'm not like offering commentary <laughs> on tw- on Twitter because I get really just weird about typos, and I want to delete everything. And so so
0: yeah. Uh, number six: What's the most embarrassed you've ever been?
1: Um, probably my first day of ninth grade, I actually started school late. So like a week late because of some, you know, had to get some form signed or whatever. And so it, it was like the thing from the teen movie where the kid is walking through the hallway with all the books <laughs> and someone tripped me. <laughs> <laughs> and So ninth grade, packed hallway, all the books on yeah. the ground. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're, your
0: your your life does sound like uh like a TV show. Like I think we need a sitcom out of this. This is like it's writing itself. Um, number seven. What's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve?
1: Um. Hmm. That's a that's a tough question. Um. Thing I would most like to improve is probably I, I procrastinate. I feel I I was searching for a different answer, like an answer that was wittier or funnier or whatever, but I just, I procrastinate. I don't do things when I say I'm going to do them. I do them on my own time, which is good for me, but you know, I exist in a world with other people. I have a family, (laughs) I have a wife and children and I have coworkers. And so sometimes doing things on my own time isn't the most optimal. So in order to make the relationships in my life better. I probably should procrastinate less.
0: I'm going to clip that off and send it straight to my husband when his (laughs) 15 minutes is always 45 to an hour. And I'm Hmm. like, I just sat here for that 45 minutes. Now I'm learning. Don't stop whatever you're doing because it's not going to be 15 minutes. Don't stop and then waste the 45 minutes that he's going to make you wait by like preemptively thinking you're going to leave. Just keep doing what you're doing until he's ready.
1: What did you read the study about procrastination where people, you know, people who procrastinate are actually optimists. Because they just believe that they're you know, they'll do things in time that
0: I'm sure that that study exists along with another study that says they're narcissists and selfish, and if you drink wine every day you'll lose weight. And if you yeah.
1: (laughs) I didn't see those Uh,
0: (laughs) number eight, any band, alive or dead, can play your next party. Who is it? Or musician.
1: Definitely Wu Tang. Wu Tang.
0: Nice. I was just messaging with Ghostface the other day. Nice guy, Ghostface.
1: Yeah, I would get and I would get not just the Wu, but like Killer Army, Sons of Man.
0: Okay, all the, um,
1: the grave, the grave diggers, all the Wu adjacent
0: people.
1: All the Wu uh, affiliates. Nice. Would I appreciate be, you would not calling
0: there. me for dropping that name. I just, I you just smoothly and deftly moved past it, and I appreciate that. Um. Uh, number nine. What would you consider your biggest failure?
1: <sighs> biggest failure. I mean, I could think of some relationships <laughs> that ended. Um prematurely but i'm i'm happily married so if those relationships didn't end prematurely then maybe things wouldn't have worked out the way that they have right now um shit biggest failure um okay i convinced myself this year that i was going to um for for lent that I was going to um, do like the selective fast thing where you you only eat for eight hours a day right. and it, it, it hasn't worked.
0: <laughs> There's, that's a failure. But perhaps <laughs> yeah, it's the best it because worked. everyone talks about that. And I'm like, that seems awful. I'm not mm. into that. Number 10, what three words would you most hope people would use to describe you?
1: Um, Pittsburgh. Black, um, <laughs> v- viral I was wondering. I knew. I
0: knew a word like that was coming. I wasn't sure which one.
1: V- the Veral burger.
0: Love bird. it. Perfect. Um, and finally, who should I have on this podcast? Who's someone great and interesting that I should talk to?
1: Um, Panama Jackson, my co um co writer for VSB. Um. Uh, I'm just looking at people who've written books that I love. Um, uh, her Nafisa Thompson Spears, this book "Kids of the Color People" is a great book. She would be a great podcast guest. cassie um, Laman would be a great podcast guest if you haven't had him so far. Um, Thisha Filial, who's another Pittsburgher, who wrote a great book um, about uh forget it's, it's about church church ladies. I can't think of the title right now, but it, I think it's called "Church Ladies." Be or something like that but it's uh, it's a really it's a really good
0: i appreciate book. you just uh, recommending other authors whose books secret, i would like to read before they the come on lives, to add the, to my list of
1: secret books. lives of church ladies
0: okay that's uh, not the same as church ladies before, but if there's <laughs> any of that in there i'm ready for i'm ready for that one to move to the top of the list um that's a good list that's a, i'll start with that that's a lot of books that i have to read so um damon thanks for doing this this was fun i appreciate it
1: oh thanks thanks for having me sir i appreciate it that's what she said.
0: So this is the place for rants and raves and everything in between. Something I've read, something I've seen, something you've written me. And this week it's uh that's what she read from at the dot forward on Instagram. I thought it was relevant to the discussion from today. Um, and it read get comfortable saying one, thanks for correcting me. I didn't realize that. Two, I hadn't thought of it like that. I understand now. Three, I was wrong about that and I've changed my mind. Four. I should do some research before I argue this point. There's no shame in being wrong, only in refusing to learn. So Damon talking about looking back at his old work and wanting to change things perfectly normal, especially if you're evolving your thoughts and ideas on really big picture topics or even criticisms of art or music or culture. I think we are so stuck now in our back and forth on the Internet and digging in our heels and viewing the people that we're engaging with as adversaries and opponents instead of people in a conversation, in a back and forth, um, that we seek out um, places to plant our flag and never remove it, regardless of the information that comes our way. So there's a lot of power in realizing and understanding that we're doing that, acknowledging it, and then trying to step away from it and trying to grow by changing our opinions, by getting more information and having that inform how we feel. Um, And that's why I think sometimes going back and trying to gotcha people for things from years ago is silly, because um, there should be a presumed evolution. But I also think you can ask people how they feel about those things now. And if they haven't moved off that point, and if they still feel ways that feel wrong or problematic or dismissive or bigoted, um, then you hold them accountable for it. Then you have the tough conversations about what it means um, for their work and their life. But um, I hope we're all getting better every day. And I hope we're all willing to admit the things that we've learned more about and feel differently about a lot of those conversations and topics came up in today's pod. So thought it was something that we should uh, finish the day on. Don't forget, you can always tweet me at Sarah Spain. If you've got guest suggestions or questions or things you think I should read, and you can always go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, rate it five stars, please. And give me a review. You can leave uh, any sort of info in that review that you want me to read. Thanks as always for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said.